Professor Janislavski, thank you for your introduction and also for this lecture series. And it is a, a privilege for me to come back again and a relief for me after last night where I was focusing in Alexandria on politicizing the Bible, the roots of historical criticism, the secularization of scripture, looking at the hermeneutic of secularism. And now I'd like to kind of come back to what it is I believe we're really in search of and uh, grateful for. I'd like to begin with a story that I, I like to tell. Uh, I was downtown Pittsburgh to visit a dear friend. Uh, Father Ronald Lawler was a Capuchin theologian, and uh, he only had a few days left. And I had gotten downtown in time for visiting, visiting hours, and I, I was circling around. I knew I was close, but I was lost. And so I finally pulled over, and I asked for directions, and I I asked the fellow on the sidewalk, I, I'm looking for Mercy Hospital. He said, you're practically there. I said, well, I, I know that, but I can't seem to make that last step. He said, well, look, just turn down pride and you'll find mercy. <laughs> and he walked away. And I could tell he really enjoyed that. <laughs> I didn't. And as I was about to speed away with frustration, I looked straight ahead and the, and the street sign read Pride Avenue. And so I turned down pride, and sure enough, I found mercy in the back entrance. And I told Father Ronald how I had found him. He said, Scott, that's the story of my life. And I have to agree, it's the story of mine. It's also a story that reminds me of sort of the foundational narrative of what I'd like to build upon this afternoon, and that is the famous episode in Luke 24 involving Clopas and his unnamed companion who are walking on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus that Sunday evening. And as you know, a stranger meets up with them, or at least they took him to be a stranger because they failed for whatever reason to recognize the resurrected Lord, who asked them what they were talking about and they were somewhat startled. Are you the only one who doesn't know about what? Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet mighty in deed and word, who was mighty before God and all of the people, and they go on to describe how they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, but they he was crucified. And then some women from our company came back and recounted how they had found the tomb empty and a vision of angels, and he just lets them go on and on. And of course, you know the end of the story because uh, when they're done, he turns them, and you'd think he might offer some words of hope or consolation, but instead, he says to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And so beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, I was on that road earlier this year. It's at least seven or eight miles long. It's a winding road. It would have taken many hours so I suspect they probably were treated to what was arguably the greatest Bible study in salvation history. When they arrived at the village of Emmaus, they looked to be, he looked to be going further. Of course, they persuaded him to join them for a meal. And that's when we read that when he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And those same four, action, those same four actions, those same four verbs are what we find in Luke 22 with the institution narrative. But of course, Clopas and his companion weren't numbered among the 12, so they weren't there. Nonetheless, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. 
and their eyes were suddenly opened, and they recognized him. And just as suddenly, we read, he vanished out of their sight, and they turned to each other, and what did they say? Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven gathered together and those who were with them. And they recounted what happened, how he was sharing the scriptures and how their hearts were burning within them about how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now that crucial phrase that we read, breaking of the bread in verse 35, becomes, of course, something of an idiomatic expression for the Eucharistic liturgy in the first century, or what we would call the Holy Sacrifice or the Mass in the 21st century. And I'd like to use this story as a sort of point of departure because we get a glimpse here of how the relationship between the Old and New Testaments brings about a unity and how Christ's death and resurrection is the hinge on which it all turns from the old to the new. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things before entering into his glory? But I also want to just pinpoint one particular phrase that we read in verse 31. Their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread. Because, of course, we recognize that phrase, their eyes were opened, from a familiar passage in the Old Testament, in Genesis 3, verse 7. After Adam and Eve ate, what happened? Their eyes were opened. And so the Old Testament begins with this act of consumption and then an unveiling, a sort of revelation, only the guilt and the shame that was unveiled to the original couple is precisely what the death and resurrection overcomes. And so I think we have to recognize that the Old Testament narrative is such that it reads like a story in search of an ending, a covenant that is broken, that has yet been renewed time and again by God and his mercy, but has yet to be fulfilled. And when it is fulfilled by Jesus, by the new Adam, as it were, what we see is something that unites the old and the new, and yet fulfills the old in a way that surpasses the highest hopes and expectations of the most devout Jews. There is continuity in the fulfillment, but there is a discontinuity because that fulfillment takes them to places that even the prophets could only see in shadows. But in the old and the new, we, we have this act of eating and the eyes are open, and then also the breaking of the bread and the eyes were open. But in between, we have a prophetic tradition as well that I highlight in this book, Consuming the Word, the New Testament and the Eucharist in the Early Church. Because you'll recall from the opening chapters of Ezekiel, when that prophet was called by God, the calling takes on a peculiar form. In Ezekiel 2, we read in verse 9, And when I looked, behold, a hand was stretched out to me, and lo, a written scroll was in it. And he spread it before me, and it had writing on front and back. And he said to me, Son of man, eat what is offered to you. Eat this scroll. And go, speak to the house of Israel. And so I opened my mouth, and he gave me the scroll to eat. And I ate it, and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. And he said to me, Son of man, now go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. And this is the commissioning of Ezekiel. But it's also familiar to us, not only because of the old, but also a similar episode that we read in the new. In the book of Revelation, chapter 10, beginning in verse 1 and following, John the seer turns to hear this 
voice turns to see an angel who had a little scroll open in his hand. And he said to me, take it and eat. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. And then I was told, you must prophesy about many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. It's, a, it's an odd sort of episode, the eating of a book in two biblical texts, the old and the new. And it commanded the attention of some of the best patristic commentators in the opening centuries. For example, St. Hippolytus of Rome in the third century argues that this act of eating the scroll signifies the prophets and the apostles and how the old was written on one side and the new on the other. And the scroll symbolizes the secret spiritual teaching and mystery. And then St. Jerome argues that uh, unless we eat the open book, we cannot teach the children of Israel. And then in the general, St. Gregory the Great, in his commentary on Ezekiel, writes, quote, what the Old Testament promised, the New Testament made visible. What the former announces in a hidden way, the latter openly proclaims as present. Therefore, the Old Testament is a prophecy of the new and the New Testament is the best commentary on the old. And this, of course, is a familiar tradition for us. And I want to use it because it sort of builds on what I was proposing on Monday evening. I hope some of you were there. Because I, I, I set forth a thesis in the presentation then that I want to just sort of reaffirm now, that when you look carefully at the New Testament, you find the phrase, kine diatheke, seven times, four times in Hebrews, and three times earlier, once in Luke 22, a second time in 1 Corinthians 11, and then a third time in 2 Corinthians 3, 6. But each and every time the term occurs, it's not referring to a document. It's referring to the sacrament of the Eucharist and the apostles' ministry of the new covenant, which is wrapped around the Holy Eucharist. And so I suggested that we ought to realize that the New Testament was a sacrament long before it started to becoming a document, according to the document. And that this ought to shape the way we read the document that becomes known as the New Testament precisely because of its liturgical proximity to the Eucharist, which is the primordial form of the New Testament, as Jesus calls it when he institutes it. Far from devaluing sacred scripture, however, recognizing the liturgical context for the reading of scripture as being most basic and primary, this ends up giving to us a certain perspective that endows sacred scripture with what Pope Emeritus Benedict has referred to as a sacramental quality. In Verbum Domini, he speaks of the sacramentality of sacred scripture. That what the words of consecration do to bread and wine is something that the priest or deacon ought to strive through prayer and study to do with the written text that it ought to become living word, and that Christ is free to speak. And so we can see that when we develop a liturgical hermeneutic for reading scripture from the heart of the church, scripture participates in the very mystery it communicates. What is the mystery? Well, it is the mystery of Christ, the eternal word made flesh, the incarnate word, fully human and fully divine, like us in all things except sin. And then the inspired word is fully human and fully divine, like any other book except without error. But 
as Pope Benedict points out and as I develop in consuming the word, there are presumably many books that are written by humans that are carefully edited that are devoid of error. But that doesn't make them inspired. That wouldn't lead us to include them in the canon. So the errorlessness of sacred scripture is a negative byproduct of the inspiration. The inspiration of sacred scripture by the Holy Spirit is something that is very close to the heart of the mystery of the incarnation of the word. It's not because Jesus was sinless that he saves us. Otherwise, Mary would have the identical role, being without sin. It's not being without sin, it's being the fullness of divinity that is clothed in humanity. Having taken what is ours, he gives us what is his. And yet he does so in a way that is utterly unexpected. Majesty wrapped in humility. And not only for the incarnate word made flesh, but also for the inspired word. What we approach, what we find when we approach sacred scripture is somewhat unexpected. If this is the word of God, then we might, you know, anticipate some divine form, some majestic expression, but instead it's like the word made flesh in the manger, on the cross, appearing like bread. The word that is inspired comes to us in Hebrew prose and poetry in ways that the world just didn't see coming. So as we approach scripture from the heart of the church and we read it, most especially in its liturgical context, I think what we're going to discover is not only spiritually more satisfying, but also critically superior from a strictly scientific viewpoint. Because a hermeneutic ought to be developed in order to read a text on its own terms. And the text of sacred scripture, as we can see as a historical fact, it's an ecclesial document that was put together for a liturgical purpose. And when it's read that way, whether it's by conservative Catholics or true critical scholars, it's going to exert a greater explanatory power simply by reading the text on its own terms with a kind of critical sympathy, approaching the text with the same faith that you'll find in the text is truly an objective hermeneutic. You know, the idea that you have to check your faith at the door and not believe or at least not impose upon the text this openness to the supernatural, you know, that would be as, as absurd as contending that, you know, a music critic is more objective precisely because he's tone deaf. No, we, we ought to listen to the word of God with the same faith that gave rise to the word of God. We ought to recognize this liturgical habitat as being natural, if not supernatural. Likewise, you know, you wouldn't think much of a professional botanist if he pulled a plant up by its roots and took it into the lab and began wondering why it's wilting and dying under the lights. That's what happens whenever you take any organism out of its natural habitat. And so sacred scripture belongs to the church and it is a part of the liturgy, not just because the New Testament was a sacrament long before it started to become a document, but because the document itself was formed for the purpose of proclaiming the fulfillment of the old in the new. And that fulfillment isn't something that terminates with the death of the last apostle in the first century, it's precisely what is continued through the work of the Holy Spirit through apostolic succession, most especially in the apostolic succession, most especially in the liturgy of the church. 
Now, I look at the time and I, I want to propose some other things, but uh, I'm going to have to come back to these. I, I just want to say this uh, on a practical note. This is not so academic as it is pastoral. You know, when you read scripture by itself, you know, which I did for many years, you know, it's, it's comparable to kind of navigating, a, you know, downtown traffic with a map. You know, you can do it, but it's easy to get lost, and once you do, you know, it's sort of hard to find your way. Uh, what a friend of mine has described in becoming a Catholic, and he's also a, a professor and a professional exegete, it's sort of like uh, navigating you know, these streets of a city you know, with a map, but also with GPS. You've got a living voice. You've got satellite technology from the heavens, you know, and when you make a wrong turn, what do you hear? Recalculating, you know. <laughs> And the Holy Spirit speaks through the Vicar of Christ and the apostolic succession still today in a way that I think is remarkable. So what difference does all of this make for us and especially for the new evangelization, which was the theme that I introduced in Monday evening's presentation? Well, I think what we have to focus upon is the notion of the Paschal mystery. And I want to just shift gears here for a moment because I am convinced that this is part of not only the new evangelization, but the hermeneutic of continuity. You may have read Lumen Fide over the summer. Uh, it, it has not been discussed as much as it deserves to be. Uh, I think that's probably what happens to any encyclical when it's promulgated midsummer. <laughs> not many people have the time or the leisure or the interest to read it. But in Article 25, Pope Francis, drawing, I know, a lot from Pope Emeritus Benedict, speaks of this massive amnesia, quote unquote, which involves the loss of memory, the loss of deep memory, which is what really stands in the way of the new evangelization and what the new evangelization has to find ways to overcome. One of the few times, in fact, that the encyclical usually actually uses the, the phrase new evangelization. But what I'd like to propose is that the that this antidote to the massive amnesia takes us back not just to the, the documents of Vatican II. As I mentioned Monday evening, the magisterium of Pope Pius XII needs to be recovered more consciously and more thoroughly. Why? Well, you know, I, I mentioned the importance of several of his encyclicals Monday evening, but I would focus especially upon the recovery of the pastoral, of the Paschal mystery. Uh, we often associate liturgical reform with the aftermath of Vatican II. But it's a little known but important fact of history that the liturgical reform really began several years before Vatican II. The Paschal mystery was precisely the theme that was emphasized as central when Pope Pius XII back in 1950 and 51 basically restored Holy Week and then the Triduum and especially the Easter Vigil and the multiple readings of the old that are fulfilled in the new, and so on and so forth. It was originally a five-year trial, a kind of experiment to see how the bishops and how the priests responded. And after five years, it was implemented for another 15 years. Of course, Pius XII did not live long enough to ratify it fully, but that's what Paul VI did around 1970. And so the liturgical renewal began long before Vatican II, and it did so along the lines of the Paschal mystery. But I want to raise the question, when we read scripture from the heart of the church with the Paschal mystery at the center, 
What difference does it make? Well, in order for us to advance the new evangelization in these terms, I would propose that what we need to do is identify the evangel. What is the Catholic gospel? In other words, how does Jesus' death affect our salvation? How does his suffering and dying bring about the redemption of the world? Because it's not something that just, you know, is obvious. And yet I think our tradition is precisely what makes this so luminous as a mystery, as the Paschal mystery. You know, a lot of people proclaim the gospel apart from our tradition in terms of Jesus' death and resurrection because they explain how Jesus' suffering for our sin is what saves us and the world. That it's really how much he suffered that saves us. Within our tradition, we wouldn't put it that way. It's not how much Jesus suffers that saves us. Suffering does not have any intrinsic value, much less a redemptive power in and of itself. Suffering, however, is one of those things that nevertheless pertains to our redemption. But suffering without love is meaningless and unendurable. But on the other hand, as Pope Francis recently pointed out, echoing Pope Emeritus Benedict, love without suffering can be easily reduced to sentimentality or warm feelings and nothing more. There's a close connection between suffering and love, not only in our own experience, but also in the Paschal mystery. For on the one hand, what proves the authenticity or the genuineness of love is the willingness to suffer for the beloved. Greater love hath no man than this than to lay down one's life for his beloved. So suffering is what not only proves the genuineness of love, it also purifies and perfects that love in its expression. But suffering by itself is, as I said, unendurable. But when you add suffering to love, what do you find? Sacrifice. So love is what transforms suffering into sacrifice. And significantly, as we look at the pastoral mystery, we see that what Jesus institutes on Holy Thursday is the Eucharist, which is the sacramentum caritatis. It's the sacrament of charity. And as I try to develop on Monday evening, precisely as such, it is what transformed a Roman execution into the consummation of Jesus' self-offering. So the sacrament of love transforms the suffering of Calvary into the consummation of the Paschal sacrifice. And not just for him, but also for us. Because Jesus doesn't just bear a cross for the world, he bestows a cross on each and every one of us. But not until he has given us a share of the Holy Eucharist, given us a taste of his own body, blood, soul, and divinity. That body that was crucified and resurrected is precisely the one that we receive in Holy Communion. And so as we look at the mystery of redemption, I think we have to recognize the importance of Jesus' obedience, suffering, and love. And again, I mentioned briefly on Monday evening something that I'd like to come back to and develop a little more, and that is it's the love that endows the suffering with its sacrificial and redemptive value. Quoting from St. Thomas in the Tertia Pars, question 46, 
St. Thomas, I think, is the one who strikes the balance. Because on the one hand, liberal Protestants talk about how it's the love of Christ that saves us, plain and simple. So why the cross? Well, it shows the courage of his conviction and his willingness to suffer, but the suffering is not what saves it. It has no redemptive value. On the other hand, fundamentalist Protestants point to the suffering and make that the means by which we are redeemed. Why? Because when God looks down from heaven, he no longer sees his son. He only sees our sin. And so he brutally punishes our sin in this innocent victim because he was willing, which I think is a gross distortion, not only of scripture and of the mystery of Calvary, but also of the tradition. When the father is looking down upon his son, he's not just seeing our sin. I would propose to you that the sacred humanity of Jesus never looked so beautiful as when it was living out the consent of the son in the garden of Gethsemane to the very end, pouring out his life to the very last drop. So it isn't just a moral example, as the liberal Protestants say, nor is it penal substitution, as Luther and Calvin and as many fundamentalist preachers say. No, it is suffering out of love and the obedience of the Son. As St. Thomas puts it, by suffering out of love and obedience, Christ gave more to God than was required to compensate for all of the sins of the human race. How does that work? Well, first, because of the exceeding charity from which he suffered. It's not how much he suffers that saves us, it's how much he loves. The love is what transforms the pain into a passion that is a divine and redemptive love. Secondly, because of the dignity of his life, which he laid down in atonement. The dignity of a life that is not merely human, but also divine. And not merely a creature, but a filial person. Thirdly, because of the extent of the passion and the greatness of the grief endured. Notice that Thomas highlights the grief. It isn't just the physical pain that is redemptive. We know from our own experience that the pain of the body is nothing compared to the pain of the soul, the pain of the heart. And so it isn't as though nobody suffered longer than Jesus physically. There have been POWs who've been tortured for months or years. But we, we need to remember something that I think Thomas is pointing to, that love does not diminish our capacity to suffer. Love is precisely what enlarges our capacity to suffer. The more we love, the more we're willing to suffer for the beloved. And how much truer would this be for the eternal son made flesh? This love that he has expressed in his human heart renders him capable of suffering not only a physical pain, but also the pain of grief in the heart, the suffering of the soul. Thus, St. Thomas concludes, Christ's passion was not only sufficient, but superabundant atonement for our sins. Indeed, he concludes, Christ's love was so much greater than a slayer's malice that the value of his passion in atoning surpassed the guilt of his crucifiers, such that Christ's suffering is sufficient and superabundant atonement even for the sin of his murderers. So the Catholic understanding of the evangel Jesus' death and resurrection is what saves the world. But the Eucharist is what illuminates the mystery of Good Friday. 
Again, to reiterate what I was saying on Monday, to show us he wasn't losing his life on Friday if he'd already given it freely as an act of love in the Eucharist. So if the Eucharist is what transforms the execution into a sacrifice, Easter Sunday is what transforms the sacrifice into a sacrament that we can now do in memory of him. He institutes the sacrifice and the sacrament simultaneously, but the sacrament becomes something that is doable because his body is now communicable. You might say it's distributable. It is deified, but it is also deifying as we receive it in the Holy Eucharist. And so it's significant, I believe, that the Paschal mystery involves the Pasch of the New Covenant, the Eucharist, where he fulfills the old by transforming it into the new precisely by instituting the Eucharist. The Eucharist then is fused to the cross. These two events are not only inseparable but mutually illuminating. But the Paschal mystery culminates with the resurrection. And as we hear in the Eucharistic prayer, also in the ascension and where he is enthroned at the right hand, precisely as a royal high priest in the heavenly temple who performs a liturgy before the angels and saints that we participate in under the appearance of sacraments below. But I want to propose to you that the Paschal mystery is precisely what will illuminate the mystery of the kingdom. A lot of times you'll hear scholars just state as a matter of fact that Jesus led the apostles to believe that he would return that the world would end within a generation or so. That they really expected the end of the world as we know it within their own lifetime. And then of course the church had to overcome the crisis of the delay of the parousia and it did so by institutionalizing, sacramentalizing, and hunkering down for the rest of history, however long that might be. Yaroslav Pelikan, in the first volume of his classic work on the Christian tradition, examines all of the first century evidence, as other scholars have done, and looks, you know, he draws this conclusion after sifting and sorting through the documentary evidence. Quote, one looks in vain for any proof of a bitter disappointment over the postponement of the parousia, or of a shattering of the early Christian communities by the delay of the Lord's return." Close quote. This is something that other scholars have seen as well, including David Alney, who at the time was a Baptist who wrote his dissertation that Brill published on the cultic setting of realized eschatology, looking at the Shepherd of Hermas, as well as the Apocalypse and the Epistles of Ignatius, he concludes that there really isn't any sense that there is this shock or disappointment over the postponement of the parousia. That instead, as the title of his doctoral dissertation that Brill published puts it, the cultic setting of realized eschatology. Pelican goes so far as to say this, and I quote, in examining the patristic material in the ancient liturgies, Quote, the Eucharistic liturgy was not compensation for the postponement of the parousia, but a way of celebrating the presence of one who had promised to return, close quote. Let me say that again. And Pelican, as you probably know, was really the foremost church historian of the previous generation, taught at Yale for, dec Yale for decades, and was a Lutheran for most of his life, but then entered the Orthodox Church near the end. I spoke to him about a month before uh, his, his passing uh, 
I didn't know he was that, that sick, but I, I noticed in a footnote in volume one that he expressed his longing to return to this point and expand upon it at some future date. And I couldn't find anything in my search, and so I asked him, he said, no, that is the one thing that is frustrating. I, I really wanted to come back to this. But here's the quote one more time. The Eucharistic liturgy was not compensation for the postponement of the parousia, but a way of celebrating the presence of one who had promised to return. Close quote. Now, what's the point? Well, here's another place where we strike a balance between two extremes. Because on the one hand, liberal Protestants have no difficulty affirming the fact that Jesus expected to come back and end the world as we knew it, the material universe, but didn't and was wrong. Fundamentalists, interestingly enough, understand the parousia in a very similar way, that it's simply the end of the world as we know it, and it's something that was expected, but it's been postponed. What both of them miss, and what Pelican and others have pointed out, is that the term parousia is not properly translated in terms of second coming. It's a different term for coming, erikomai or kamenon. The word parousia had a plain, primary sense in the first century, especially for Jews who spoke and wrote in Greek. For example, in Philippians 2, verse 12, St. Paul writes to the Philippians saying, as in my presence, so now in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And what's the word he uses for presence? Parousia. When you look it up in a lexicon, that is precisely the, the definition you will find. The primary denotation of parousia is presence, a person's presence. So when I was present, now I'm absent, keep working out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the parousia of Christ is not something that is primarily postponed. It is something that is celebrated. There is a first coming in the flesh. There will be a final coming at the end, but there is what St. Bernard of Clairvaux refers to as a middle coming, adventus medius. I'll read from a famous excerpt from a sermon that St. Bernard of Clairvaux delivered. It's used in the Roman office of readings for Wednesday, the first week of Advent. I quote, we know that there are three comings of the Lord. The third lies between the other two. It is invisible, while the other two are visible. In the first coming, he was seen on earth, dwelling among men. He himself testifies that they saw him and hated him. In the final coming, all flesh will see the salvation of our God, and they will look on him whom they've pierced. The intermediate coming, the middle coming, the Adventus Medius, is a hidden one, but truly real. In it, only the elect see the Lord through the gift of faith. In this middle coming, he comes in spirit and in power. In the final coming, he will be seen in his glory and majesty. In case someone should think that what we say about this middle coming is sheer invention, listen to what our Lord himself says. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come to him. And then he cites other texts. Now, where have we been hearing about this middle coming more recently. It's the climax of volume two in Pope Benedict's work, Jesus of Nazareth. After 
dealing with Holy Week for over 250 pages, reminding us of the centrality of the Eucharist as the fulfillment of the Passover and the Passover, the new covenant, that illuminates the mystery of Calvary as the consummation of the Paschal sacrifice. He concludes this on page 290, citing St. Bernard of Clairvaux, and then concluding that we have in the Eucharist an eschatology of the present, the adventus medius, the anticipatory presence, the middle coming takes place because the Lord keeps his word. He comes to us in the sacraments, most especially in the Holy Eucharist. So how do we express this belief in the Eucharistic parousia? We believe in the real presence. Well, if you were to translate the 21st century faith of Catholics back into the first century Greek of Jewish Christians, what term would you use? Parousia. We believe in the real presence because we believe in the Eucharistic parousia. It's a significant fact, as Pope Benedict points out, that the resurrection appearances that are dated are always occurring on what day of the week? The first day, Sunday. Not just the first, but then eight days later and again. So Jesus is appearing time and again on the first day of the week, on the Lord's day, as it were. And what are early Christians being conditioned to recognize? That he comes to us on the Lord's Day, in the Eucharist. And what is the primary setting in which he makes these resurrection appearances? More often than not, it's precisely within the context of a meal. Like the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, it's when they sit at the table, when he takes, blesses, breaks, and gives the same four verbs that you find in the institution narrative of Luke 22. And so again, by the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and again and again. And so I am convinced that what we need to recognize is what Pope Paul VI said about evangelization. Evangelization involves a sort of twofold act of inhaling the mystery of Christ and then exhaling by breathing, by proclaiming this. So evangelization, he defines in Evangelii Nunciandi as the proclamation of Christ to the world and the offering of the holy sacrifice of the Mass. Well, which is it? And how does the Mass relate to evangelization? Inseparably. Because the content of the Evangel, the Gospel itself for us as Catholics, is the Paschal Mystery. And the Paschal Mystery is precisely what is represented to us in every Eucharist. As uh, then Cardinal Ratzinger put it in his book, Eschatology, on page 168, the parousia is the highest intensification and fulfillment of the liturgy. And the liturgy is parousia. Every Eucharist is parousia, the Lord's coming. And yet the Eucharist is even more truly the tense yearning that he would reveal his hidden glory, close quote. So the Eucharistic presence is a true parousia, a middle advent, a middle coming. So when we consider this, we can step back and realize that this might help us understand why Jesus suddenly disappeared. You know, once he was made known in the breaking of the bread, this Eucharistic mystery is his resurrected body. So this coming Sunday, if when Father Fasano pronounces the words of consecration at St. John the Baptist, you witness this spectacle, poof, 
the risen Savior suddenly is standing right next to him, we could safely conclude that Jesus' real presence would not have become any more real by becoming visible in his physical resurrected body. Why? Because the Eucharist is the resurrected body. It is the glorified Savior. His sacred humanity that was crucified, that was buried, that was raised, and is now glorified. So I want to propose to you that this helps explain why, when you read the book of Revelation in a way that is true to our tradition, you can see that what you find on every page of the apocalypse is not the Antichrist, it's not the rapture, it's not the second coming. These are words and phrases that don't even occur a single time in the 22 chapters. But the one thing that we find on every page of the apocalypse is what? The Agnus Dei. 28 times he's referred to as the Lamb of God in 22 chapters. The Trisagion in chapter 4, verse 8. The Alleluia, the glory, the Amen. And not just these liturgical acclamations, but the furniture and the vestments. So we have the presbyters, we have the biblion, the scroll, the book, we have the altar with the chalices. And as you read through the visions of John and the apocalypse, all of the things that God is doing on earth through judgments correspond to his response to this Eucharistic liturgy, celebrated on earth as it is in heaven with the angels and the saints. There's a mystery here that I think is worth pondering, that if Jesus Christ is the heavenly high priest, and he can send down the Holy Spirit upon mortal men to empower them to speak certain words that transform earthly matter from bread and wine into the resurrected, glorified body of Jesus Christ. If that's what he can empower mere mortals to do, as they have done now for thousands of years, these Catholic priests who are empowered by the Spirit to transform earthly matter into the glorified and sacred humanity of Jesus just think what the high priest can do. And I would propose to you that the eschaton, the third coming, the final coming, is simply going to be the consummation of all of the masses that we have celebrated and shared in. Only at that point, the high priest will say to the earthly priest, step aside, and he'll place his hands over the whole planet and speak words like, this is my body. And instead of transubstantiating bread and wine into his resurrected body, he will transubstantiate all of the dust of all of the saints and all of the martyrs of all of the ages into the glorified resurrected body of Christ. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise him up on the last day in a way that is mostly inexplicable, truly mysterious but real. The Eucharist becomes an instrument by which the general resurrection of the whole Christ is going to be consummated as the climax of the Paschal mystery through all of the ages. I am convinced that we're not embellishing here. We're not just simply maximizing a liturgical hermeneutic. We're just simply plumbing the depths of what it means to say we believe that the Eucharist is a true sacrifice, that it is a sacrament of love, that it involves a real presence that issues forth in a communion of holy things and holy ones with Jesus Christ. When we take this to heart, and when we study this, and then turn around and share it, I am convinced that what we're going to do is end up showing the riches of sacred scripture 
not less than those who have Scripture alone, but far, far more. The sacramentality of Scripture, as I said, that's how Benedict puts it. You know, in Verbum Domini, he speaks of the sacramentality of Scripture and shows how the Bible, when it's read in the liturgy, is not just informative. It's performative. It involves a performative utterance of God, a sort of speech act. You know, sometimes what we say is merely descriptive. Other times it is performative. I think back to last year when uh, this young man who just joined your faculty said these particular words, just two of them, I do. And in front of the witnesses there at St. Peter's, he didn't just say, I do, he did, like I did with Kimberly. There are certain words that perform actions. And scripture is that way when it's proclaimed in the liturgy. It's not just informative, it is also performative, and that's how it becomes transformative for us. And so Pope Benedict concludes in this section of Herbum Domini by taking the familiar quote of St. Jerome, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ, and reversing it by pointing out how ignorance of Christ's real presence in the Holy Eucharist is also ignorance of sacred scripture and the true meaning that we find in the New Testament. But only when we read it from the heart of the church, only when we develop a kind of liturgical hermeneutic that is entirely connatural with the text itself. When we read scripture from the heart of the church, we're reading it the way it was written, the way it was meant to be read and interpreted. And we're also entering into the Paschal mystery more fully and preparing ourselves to proclaim the gospel in a way that God longs to bless perhaps even more than we want him to.